Who doesn't want to believe? I get it. Some people try not to think of that stuff, but it seems like a pretty core tenet of humanity. This need to believe in something greater than ourselves, a higher power, giving in to some sort of mystique, some sort of consciousness beyond our earthly limits. Some of us indulge this quirk of evolution or desire that we have for something more with religion and the idea of an afterlife, although the only thing that terrified Shakespeare's Hamlet more than death was the very eternity of heaven, the fact that you can't leave. Others fill the void through political ideology. We talk a lot on this podcast about the woke left, the alt-right, those who worship Trump or Trudeau, Biden or Boris. And there's conspiracy theory, let's not forget that. And today's topic for quite some time was considered a conspiracy theory, with the X-Files and the 90s New Age nonsense and the Roswell incident a few decades previous. I've been fascinated by the way UFOs have been rebranded as UAPs, a more palatable reality, as we search the skies for creatures unidentified. Today's guest is astrophysicist and cosmologist Dr. Avi Loeb, the Frank B. Baird Professor of Science at Harvard University. He also chairs Harvard's Department of Astronomy and their Black Hole Initiative. He's pretty much the guy in the world to discuss extraterrestrial life in the universe, which I think is indicative of how far UFOs have come in the public zeitgeist from X-Files silliness to Harvard professors. He's the cream of the crop in his field, so thank you, Ash Meekle, for getting him on. This interview was recorded live for the Atwood Unleashed show that Sean Atwood and I do Wednesday evenings, so go follow Sean. Check out his Sean Atwood True Crime podcast for the full four-hour shows and much, much more. As this goes out live, it's a bit less edited and produced, finessed than my Monday and Thursday episodes. The Saturday ones come from Sean's show, and I often ask questions from the live audience uh, with whom I interact. That could be you. Come along one Wednesday evening to the Sean Atwood channel. It'll be on my channel as well, On The Edge with Andrew Gold on YouTube. And support our guests by buying Dr. Loeb's book, Extraterrestrial, to learn a lot, lot more. And I hope you enjoy this. Dr. Loeb has some intriguing places to look for alien spacecraft and other signs of life, things I'd never heard of or thought of, meteorite stuff that I didn't know much about. And he seems like a very nice and pleasant man too. Please support this podcast on patreon.com slash andrewgold. Come say hi on Twitter or Instagram on andrewgold underscore okay and leave a review on Apple. But now you're on the edge of extraterrestrial life with Dr. Avi Loeb. Hello, Dr. Avi Loeb. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Is it is Loeb the right pronunciation? Loeb, yes. Originally, Loeb. it's German, but um, in, in the US, they call me Loeb. I was uh. born in Israel, and uh, they call, there they call me Leib, actually. Oh, Leib. Yes, okay. Right. I speak German, and so it will be Loeb there, but I now exactly. realize the it's Yiddish sound Leib. It's, it's only yes. three letters. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. yes, and I know in the Yiddish is a a sound instead of the er sound, so so that's maybe why they do that in 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 Israel. So um, tell me a little bit about your background and work because it's fascinating. 
Well, I was born on a farm. Uh, I'm basically, you can treat me as a farm boy. I used to collect eggs every afternoon and drive a tractor to the hills oh. of uh, the village every weekend to read philosophy books. And uh, that pretty much explains what I'm doing now because I was very connected to nature, less so to people. So I don't have any footprint on social media. I don't care how many likes I get on Twitter. What I care about is understanding the reality that we live in. And uh, every morning I jog at 5 a.m. in the company of birds, ducks, bunnies, wild turkeys. And I really enjoy nature left to itself. And, you know, the biggest um, uh, volume of, of nature is actually out there. You know, we, we tend to focus on the two-dimensional surface of the earth. You know, if you open the morning news, it's all about what happens on this planet. But there is a third dimension uh, looking up. And uh, actually, the universe is too big for us to ignore it. So I'm very fortunate to actually enjoy what I'm doing right now, even though, you know, it was a forced marriage. Uh, uh, it was sort of a, an arranged marriage, I should say, because uh, I was interested in philosophy and then uh, I had to serve in the military. That's obligatory in Israel, but I selected physics as a compromise. It's still, uh, it involves intellectual work, but, um, you know, uh, it was not, what I was aiming for. Um, but um, then I ended up as a tenured professor at Harvard. I served uh, for nine years as the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard, the longest serving chair over the past decade. And wow. um, uh, in the process of getting there, I realized that I'm actually married to my true love, even though it was an arranged marriage, because there are many fundamental questions that used to belong to philosophy that we can address using the scientific method. And uh, we can talk about some of them, like how did the universe start? What was there before the Big Bang? But the one that concerns me the most right now is, are we alone? Is there a neighbor that is smarter than we are or perhaps that existed before us? Because that would offer the opportunity to learn from that neighbor. You know, I have no problem looking over the shoulder of a smarter classmate in trying to figure out the answer to fundamental questions to which we don't have an answer. Uh, and uh, it will save us a lot of years. And also, if we find a gadget that was generated by a more advanced technological civilization, you know, like iPhone 100, version 100, uh, you know, that, that would be fun because um, first we need to figure out what it does. And second, there would be lots of people in Silicon Valley interested in cashing on it. So... Yeah. Uh, I'm saying it's an opportunity for us to leap forward. And we, you know, it's, it's a mistake on our behalf to um, basically think that we are the smartest that ever existed, that Albert Einstein is the smartest scientist who ever lived since the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. It's very likely there was a, sm a smarter scientist on an exoplanet uh, a billion years ago. And, and, and those civilizations who benefited from smarter scientists could have sent equipment to space that we can find. Isn't it an amazing thought to, to think about somebody a billion years ago uh, on a different planet who was having, you know, not just scientific uh, endeavors, but also love and uh, just living their life or just even just picking their nose or, or something, you know? Is, yeah. and you, no, I mean, do you believe it's possible? Well, you know, I spoke with the curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and I told her, uh, her last name is Antonelli, I told her that if we find a gadget that uh, represents our future, 
from another civilization. I'll be glad to put it on exhibit in MoMA, in the Museum of Modern Art, because for us it would represent modernity. Even though for the senders, it would be ancient history. So the one thing to realize is the universe existed for 13.8 billion years, okay? And most stars formed earlier than the sun. So they predated the sun by billions of years. So if you imagine the same clock ticking elsewhere on near another star, you know, they could have predated us by a billion years. That's a long time. During that time, you can pretty much fill up the Milky Way galaxy with probes that move with chemical propulsion like we sent out of the solar system. You know, we sent five probes, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. They are leaving the solar system. Just over the past half century, that's what we did. And imagine if we were to continue doing that for millions of years, you know, like, so it's possible the Milky Way galaxy is full of these probes. And just to give you a sense, only over the past decade, astronomers started finding objects that came from outside the solar system. Only over the past decade. And by now, there are, as of yesterday, there are uh, uh, four of them. Two of them I discovered with my student, Amir Siraj at Harvard. They wow. were the first interstellar meteors. One discovered in 2014 and the other one in 2017. The third one is called Oumuamua. We can talk about it. I have a book called Exoterrestrial dedicated to that one. And the fourth one uh, is called Borisov after the amateur astronomer who discovered it. And the fourth one is the only one that looks familiar. You know, it's like having guests for dinner and out of the four that you get, only one appears familiar. Someone that you can really associate with things you've seen before, like icy rocks we have seen in the solar system. The first three are really strange. Like the meteors are tougher than any meteor we had seen. So there is a catalog of meteors uh, having 273 objects in it. A meteor, just to explain, a meteor is an object that the Earth collides with. So the Earth moves around the Sun, and every now and then it collides with an object that crosses its path by chance, just like a fishing net collecting object. And uh, that's called a meteor because such an object usually burns up in the atmosphere as a result of the friction with the air. So uh, the US government has sensors that monitor the atmosphere for ballistic missiles. Okay, they want to, as a matter of national security, they want to know about objects entering in, in the direction sure. of the US, right? So every now and then they see an object that comes from space and they put it in a cut. They say, well, that's not a risk for us. Uh, it just came from space. They put it in a catalog that is publicly available. It's called the CNEOS. Over the past decade, they had 273 objects there. So, I was interviewed for a radio station one day in 2019 and then about a meteor and I went online, I saw this catalog and I told my student, why don't we check the fastest moving ones and see if they came into the solar system from outside the solar system. There is a very simple way to tell. If they move too fast, they are not bound to the sun. Gravity is not strong enough to keep them in the solar system. So we actually found that meteor from January 8th, 2014, that was moving at 60 kilometers per second outside the solar system, very fast. And it was moving faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun, relative to the sun. Wow. 
So uh, we said, okay, well, that object is the first object. It's from 2014, the first one uh, from outside the solar system. And then our colleagues were saying, you know, we don't believe the U.S. government. Uh, we want proof that this is indeed. So then um, in uh, March this year, 2022, a few years later, the U.S. Space Command released a letter saying that they confirm our finding that this meteor indeed came from outside the solar system at the 99.999% confidence. And at wow. that point, you know, our paper was accepted for publication three years too late. And we started to design an expedition. I got one and a half million dollars as of two weeks ago to go on an expedition to collect the fragments of this meteor. Why? Because not only it was moving very fast, but from the government data that was released uh, this year, together with the letter, we were able to infer that the meteor burned up only in the lower atmosphere of the Earth. And therefore, it had a very tough material composition. It was, it, the material strength actually was the highest among all the meteors in the catalog. So it's tougher than 99.7% of all meteors, tougher than iron. And just because it disintegrated only at the lower atmosphere where the stress was enormous, so we can tell the material strength was quite high. And the question is, what is it? And there are two possibilities. It's clear that it's an outlier. It doesn't belong to the type of rocks that you see in the solar system because it's so tough, you know. Um, the question is, does it originate from a very unusual natural source? Or maybe it's a spacecraft. Maybe it's made of an alloy that is artificially made to sustain the extreme stress of the atmosphere. So the only way to find out is to go there, collect the fragments, and figure out what it's made of. That's the way science is done. And, uh, you know, what I see some people doing is saying, oh, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money, why should we care about this rock? And I say, it's a very unusual rock. It's the first one that humanity spotted coming from outside the solar system. And it was moving faster than 95% of the stars. And it was tougher than all the other objects wow. that we, we, we know but it, about. But it has disintegrated a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it disintegrated... 18.7 kilometers above the ocean surface, uh, about 100 okay. miles off the coast of Papua New Guinea. So but the point that's is... no good for a spacecraft, is it? No, no, no. So it was probably not operational. That's my guess. It, you know, just think about our New Horizons spacecraft, okay? We launched it a decade and a half ago towards Pluto, and it's making its way out of the solar system now, okay? Hmm. Just imagine a billion years from now, uh, new Horizons colliding with an exoplanet. And the exoscientists on that planet say, oh, look at this meteor burning up in our atmosphere. And then imagine one of them saying, well, let's raise some funds to go on an expedition and check the fragments because it came from outside of our planetary system. So people say, oh, why do we need to do that? We know about the rocks in, the, in our planet. But he says, <laughs> That person says, no, I want to check it out. Then he goes there, uh, scoops the ocean floor, and figures out that it's made of an alloy that nature doesn't put together. And moreover, you know, on New Horizons, there was a small box that was attached to it that carried 30 grams of the ashes of Clyde Tambow, the scientist who discovered Pluto. So now just... 
think about it, those um, uh, uh, scientists, you know, realizing that humans destroyed the, the genetic information about a scientist they wanted to commemorate. That makes no sense. Like, why would you burn up the DNA of a person you want to celebrate? Uh, so they would say this, this uh, society that sent this spacecraft, you know, they're not very intelligent. They're very aggressive. <laughs> they have these rituals of destroying the information about the person they want to commemorate. We don't want anything to do with them. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> insane as a thought. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I suppose for people, for anybody who's new to like the alien discussion or the extraterrestrial discussion, you probably ha maybe have to explain uh, the Fermi paradox. Is that what it was called, the Fermi paradox? Yeah, so, so about 70 years ago, Enrico Fermi, a very distinguished uh, physicist who won the Nobel Prize, for a mistake, by the way, what, what he was awarded the Nobel Prize for turned out to be wrong, but he did so many important things among them. He was part of the Manhattan Project. He built the first uh, nuclear reactor. Uh, in the, at the University of Chicago, it's still there. 
uh, at any event, um, he was uh, at Los Alamos, obviously, Manhattan Project. Um, so, um, and he was having lunch with friends and they were talking about extraterrestrials. And he said, if they are out there, and it's very likely because there are so many stars, billions of stars, where is everybody? He was asking. And that became the Fermi paradox. Why don't... Now, just think about it. If you sit at home and you don't see anyone around you, you sit on your sofa, you say, I don't have any neighbors. Where are my neighbors? Well, in order to find your neighbors, you, need, you better look through your windows and you better use a telescope or you check your backyard, whether there are objects that came from the cosmic street. You can't just say, I don't see anyone around me because he didn't actually use telescopes at the time. And as I said, only over the past decade, we had a survey telescope called PANSTARS in Hawaii that discovered Oumuamua. We had those uh, satellites that the government, the US government employs to detect meteors of the type that is cataloged in the CNEOS uh, catalog. So in the days of Fermi, you know, 60 years earlier, there weren't any instruments like that. So obviously, where is everybody? Uh, now, you have to also recognize that, you know, we are talking about billions of years in the context of the universe. So if you're sitting at Los Alamos in 1951 or whatever, and uh, asking this question, it's a very short time span that you are monitoring anything happening around you, okay? Uh, compared to the age of the universe or compared to the ages of stars. So you need the visitors to be there at the time that you're asking the question, which is a very short time span, okay? Yeah. Moreover, space is huge. You know, it's just huge. We are not used to it. But if they sent, for example, small gadgets, you will notice them because uh, Oumuamua that was discovered by the survey telescope in Hawaii uh, was the size of a football field. And that's pretty much the smallest size object that we can see the reflection of sunlight from and detect it within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Okay, So we can't see objects that are the size of a CubeSat. That we are sent, you know, the NASA never sent a, a spacecraft the size of a football field. So mm -hmm. we may have been missing objects passing by uh, if they are just space trash, uh, unless they collide with the Earth in the case of a meteor. And uh, moreover, you know, there may be many more small objects compared to big objects. And if they move very fast, we wouldn't want this either. So, we are, you know, we are just at the infancy of actually looking for such yeah. things. And, and, you know, there was a long history of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, that you might be familiar with. It was all guided by the fact that we developed radio communication. And then some astronomers said, okay, well, if we are using radio waves to communicate, maybe, you know, we should search for signals. It sounds like a good idea, but rather narrow-minded because, you know, we just developed radio communication over the past century, okay? And, and they probably moved beyond that after 100, 200, 300 years. Like, we already use fiber optics. We use laser communication in space. So my point is, you know, if we don't detect any signals, it doesn't mean much because, perhaps, you know, and also their civilizations may have not lasted very long, but... If instead of radio signals, if they sent uh, equipment to space uh, with chemical propulsion, it's still gravitationally bound to the Milky Way. So the Milky Way is like a basket 
that keeps all the objects moving at tens of kilometers per second bound to it because it's less than the escape speed. Whereas signals of light escape from the Milky Way, if they were sent a billion years ago, they are now a billion light years away. They're very far away, we can't see them. So my point is, we can look for the accumulated uh, relics from those civilizations that predated us. And it's just like doing archeology. span I call it interstellar archeology. span Basically finding evidence for things that existed before us. If you were to you know, look for radio signal, it's just like saying, you know, I want to have a phone call with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, okay? So it doesn't matter how many numbers you dial on your cell phone, you would never get to Mozart because he's dead, okay? And the only way to find out about Mozart is to find the musical notes that he wrote, and then you realize that he existed. And in much the same way, us trying to find a radio signal could be misguided because the civilization that we are trying to communicate with does not exist anymore. And one way to find about it is to find things that it left behind. And I suppose one way that we're trying to find things is through the new James Webb telescope. I've got a question from Ray J in the audience who's just asking, has the telescope or hasn't the telescope just found something older than the estimated age of the universe? No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was actually on the... Um, advisory committee that designed the James Webb Space Telescope. Back then it was called the Next Generation Space Telescope, which I guess would have been in, in, in retrospect a better choice. They selected to name it after a NASA administrator because uh, it secured the funding, if you give credit to an early administrator. At any event, sure. um, this telescope was designed to look at the first stars, the first galaxies. Okay, And that means going back to maybe uh, a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, seeing those distant sources that emitted their light when the universe was much younger, about 5% or less of the, the present age of the universe. I actually, that was my main um, work actually, early on in my career. Uh, there were only a few people interested in the subject uh, at the time that I started, about three decades ago. I wrote two textbooks about those uh, early galaxies. Now. Indeed, the James Webb Space Telescope works fantastically well, okay? So in the first images that it released, uh, there was actually a very deep image of the universe that revealed galaxies that existed hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang, okay? Um, and we can see the stars emitting light. There is no issue with them being older than the universe. Um, by the way, we can never see something older than the universe. I mean, light is arriving to us from a distance such that, you know, uh, it was emitted at the right time for us to see it now. So if you're looking at very distant sources, you know, they at most can be at a distance that light traversed since the Big Bang. We can't see things that are older than the Big Bang. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, so... The issue that was raised about some of these galaxies is that they appear to be very massive. Okay, so people said, oh, these are such massive galaxies, that's in conflict with the popular model of the universe, which uh, is that you start with small building blocks. Galaxies start as dwarf galaxies and then they combine. Think of it of, as Lego pieces. So you start with uh, a Lego piece that is about a millionth of the mass of the Milky Way. And then uh, these Lego pieces come together and build bigger and bigger galaxies. 
And the surprise uh, is that some of the objects that were seen, some of the galaxies that were seen at early times, are relatively big, bigger than expected. And uh, right. currently there is a discussion about it. It's not resolved yet. But some people suggest that these galaxies may not were not correctly identified, that in fact they are big because they are closer to us. They, you know, in, in trying to figure out how far away they are, you have to use um, the what is called the spectrum of a galaxy, basically the distribution of light as a function of wavelength or frequency. And uh, when you try to fit that, you, you get the so-called cosmological redshift, which gives you a sense of, of the distance. And the claim is perhaps that was misidentified, that in fact those massive galaxies are closer to us, therefore they are not in conflict with the standard cosmological model. But that is not questioning uh, the light travel. It's just questioning the buildup of structure. So just right. imagine a situation where suppose galaxies started big, okay? It, it doesn't violate anything fundamental. It just says that the way we thought about the buildup of structure is wrong. And in fact, you know, I should say that most of the matter in the universe is of a nature that we don't understand. It's called dark matter. That's 80%, uh, four-fifths of the matter in the universe is made of a substance that we don't see in the solar system. It's not what we are made of. Something else, we don't know what it is. For decades, we've been trying to find out, you know, there were billions of dollars invested trying to find evidence for the particles that make up the dark matter. Nothing was found. So we, we have no clue. And um, that's one of the puzzles that is not resolved. And in a recent commentary, I said, it's really surprising that we get paid uh, as the people <laughs> who study the universe because we don't know what we are talking about. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. And, um, yeah. and the re you know, <laughs> the reason I brought this up actually is because um, I wrote a paper with a colleague of mine just a week ago about, um, you know, what is astronomy over a period of 10,000 years? You know, we have data over the last century. So just think, you know, if we were to continue this process of collecting data for 10,000 years, 10 millennia, okay? Yeah. Uh, what else can we learn? Well, first of all, we will see the universe expanding in real time. You know, we will see things happening. Um, and uh, so then uh, I, I commented that um, in 10,000 years from now, uh, you know, we scientists, humans, will probably be replaced by AI systems, computers that do the science for us because they yeah. would be smarter. You know, even within a decade, they might be smarter. AI systems will be sentient eventually and will uh, do, will process data better than humans. So uh, in 10,000 years, it's very likely that it will be AI scientists. And, and, you know, I hope that they will cite my paper about what can you learn in 10,000 years, just to demonstrate that we didn't know what we were talking about when we talked about the dark matter and so forth. But the one thing, you know, that's the future, as long as uh, the legal system will ban uh, uh, us from unplugging sentient computers from the wall, because it would be regarded like murder of humans. If that will be banned, they will rule the world if, on the other hand, some people will take them out of the outlet, you know, we would we would rule. <laughs> it's a scary thought, the Terminator stuff, I suppose. I mean, I guess we've only got a couple of minutes, but I'll just make the point, I guess, I guess, I mean, does it make you 
sad, I suppose, that so much of this stuff won't be found out until quite some time after both you and I are no longer here. Oh, no, I don't think so. I think one reason that, uh, uh, for example, we didn't find evidence for gadgets from extraterrestrial civilizations, we didn't search. You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm, you know, people often quote Carl Sagan from the 70s saying extraordinary claims require yeah. extraordinary evidence. I say extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. If we were to invest billions of dollars, the same billions of dollars that we invest in the search for dark matter, which has very little significance uh, for most human lives, you know, if we were to invest similar amounts of funds, you know, like at the search for gadgets or equipment or spacecraft sent in our direction into the solar system from other civilizations, we are, we could potentially find it within a decade. Uh, I, I'm, you know, it's it's basically a road that was not taken. Okay, and the advantage of taking the road not taken that I'm leading the Galileo project, which is aiming to do that. The advantage is that there may be low hanging fruit. So I would not give up. I would say, let's talk again in a couple of years because we are collecting <laughs> data right now. We will go on the expedition near Papua New Guinea. You know, it should be interesting. Well, let's let's talk in a couple of years and hopefully you'll have something solid to, to show us tangible evidence of extraterrestrial life. Uh, people should get your book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Is that on Amazon and the usual places? Yeah, it's everywhere. It was translated 25 languages. And, and I actually delivered two weeks ago the, the next book. Uh, it should come out in June 2023. So I hope you will enjoy that as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's work in progress, but it's very exciting. The public is excited about it. The government is excited. And uh, I'm excited. I think, you know, we have a chance to learn something really new about our cosmic neighborhood. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Loeb. Uh, and I hope we get to speak again soon. Same here. Thank you, Dr. Avi Loeb. Wow, what a renowned figure to have graced us with his presence and some fascinating thoughts uh, about the meteorite things and all this stuff that I don't know much about. But, you know, what a thought to think of uh, finding some sort of alien stuff on this planet. So do consider purchasing Dr. Avi Loeb's book, Extraterrestrial. To, to have it said much uh, more concisely than what I've just been doing. That went out live, that episode, hence the less finessed, less polished sound. It was on the Atwood Unleashed YouTube show on Sean Atwood's YouTube channel. Thank you to him. Thank you to producer Ash Meikle for nabbing Dr. Avi Loeb as a guest. And you guys, keep searching for whatever gives you that meaning. I think that that hold that we have, that drive, is what keeps us going, keeps us motivated to do more, be better in a world otherwise devoid of much abstract or profound meaning. I guess the search is the meaning. I don't believe in any gods. I try not to be too taken by political ideologies. And I give conspiracy theories short shrift. But the aliens one, that's probably the one that gets me just due to the size, the immensity of the universe. I don't think we'll ever meet them or see signs of them. 
But maybe, just maybe, and Dr. Avi Loeb certainly thinks we might. And hey, as far as far-out beliefs go, it's, it's far less destructive than believing the world is run by lizard people or the government's trying to do this or that, although sometimes they are actually doing that. Anyway, coming up this week are episodes with George Monbiot about climate change and Annie Ikba on child sacrifice. We've been trying for ages to get that one going. Please support the show on patreon.com slash Gold if this is giving you value and you want to see it grow. And leave a review on Apple. See you soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.